Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and we're doing something different today. Yes, we are. <laughs> we are not doing our three questions because Kate is going to be out of town next week on a special preaching assignment, Reformation Day, Louisville, our denominational headquarters. Which is pretty exciting, um, but we still have things to say. Um, so we are um, recording this early. Um, but we haven't had time to be astonished by anything else. <laughs> so we're simply talking about what we're thinking about today. So you first. Well, I am thinking about uh, this whole Beth Moore, John MacArthur situation. I've had a chance to uh, read some articles, watch a couple of videos. And for those who are not familiar with this controversy, first of all, Beth Moore, uh, I'm sure most of our listeners know, is a very popular uh, Bible teacher. Uh, she has a lot of, of um, Bible studies uh, published. She's a popular speaker, conference speaker, uh, and preacher, which is the cause of the controversy among those who are complementarians. Uh, Beth Moore is a Southern Baptist, and Southern Baptists do not uh, believe that women should be preachers. And so when Beth Moore announced over the summer that she would be preaching at a church well, people well, went nuts. She announced that she would be preaching at a church on Mother's Day. Yes. It wasn't even, but the fact that she used the word preaching instead of speaking Caused was the, the trigger. And we should define the word complementarianism. Thank in case, you. Yes. Yeah. So when it comes to gender and preaching, there are really two uh, camps. Uh, when it comes well, to gender. Yes. Well, yes. Yeah, that's right, because it's beyond preaching. Thank Correct. you for that. Uh, one is complementarian, and the complementarians would say, um, if I'm being uh, as generous as possible, they would say, we believe, they believe uh, that men and women, they would say equal in terms of value in the eyes of God, yet have different roles. They would say men and women are both created in the image of God, but they were created for specific and unique purposes to yes. complement yes. one another. Yes. And so men are specifically created for certain roles and positions and activities, and women are created for other complementary roles and positions and activities. And to get out of those roles is sin. Correct. And that... Um, men are created to have authority over women as Jesus Christ has authority over the church, which is an interesting metaphor to unpack, I think. Um, I think um, it is not, in my opinion, an unreasonable way to read the scriptures. I mean, it's not how I read scriptures, but it's not an unreasonable way to read the scriptures. Um, the challenge is when people talk about authority as complementarianists, they usually use the culture's version of authority yes. rather than Christ's. Yes. And so even if you read scripture in that way, mm -hmm. their lens is like the culture and not the gospel. That headship means bossship. Yeah, that means controlling, <laughs> yes. making decisions for, yes. limiting. Um, it, it's, it's a parent-child, um, superior-inferior 
um, walk. Yes. I mean, no matter that people would say, no, we're not saying that men and women aren't equal. I mean, actually, in this particular controversy, that's exactly yes. what yes. Uh, John MacArthur said. But the alternative to complementarianism is a position called egalitarianism, which is to say that men and women are equal in the eyes of God, and men and women are called by God um, to do fulfill all the roles mm-hmm. of humanity. Um, and the, um, I mean, there's obviously lots of scriptural, I think more scriptural antecedents for this position than the other by far. Um, the easiest one would be to say, in Christ Jesus, there is no longer male, female, Jew, Greek, yes. slave, or free. The idea that these categories which define and separate and create enmity in the culture are transformed yes. and subsumed. And I was thinking Acts chapter 2. Mm-hmm. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and, and your, your daughters, daughters will shall prophesy. prophesy. And the word for prophesy and the word for preach, both in Acts and in the Joel text that it is taken from, they're yes. the same word. Yes. The same word. Yes. So the controversy uh, at a conference at John MacArthur's church, uh, Grace Community Church in California, uh, there was a panel discussion, and they were playing this kind of word association game. Which was a gotcha game. I mean, the setup of the game was the the host said, I'm going to give you a word, mm-hmm. and I want you to give me a... Two words. Well, I mean, he said, I'm going to give you a one okay. word. Um, then he gave Beth Moore's name, Got and it. MacArthur's first response was, that's two words. But he said, I'm going to give you a word, and I want you to respond with a a zinger, essentially. I mean, literally, mm-hmm. he said a quick, pithy, response. memorable yep. response. Mm-hmm. So this was not a setup to have a theological nuanced conversation yes. or, a, or a proclamation moment. Yes. It, and as soon as Beth, Beth Moore's name was mentioned... Which was audience, the first name. Yes. The first yeah. thing he said. The audience laughed, um, which, when you're watching the video, makes you uneasy, right? Mm-hmm. Because they Uh, knew what was coming. Yes. And MacArthur, John MacArthur's response was that she should go home. Um, And so there have been a number of people, a number of preachers to come out uh, to support her, to say, listen, what happened to that conference was wrong. Um, It was mean-spirited. Well, he didn't even just say go home. Um, he, he, He expanded upon that to say that... Um, I mean, she said the problem with feminists is they don't want equality. They want power, which was interesting. It's sort of the inference was, and the power is ours. <laughs> you don't, shouldn't have it. They want to be senators. They want to be, yeah. you know, and he said, just because somebody has a certain kind of um, personality that would allow them to shill jewelry on QVC, that doesn't mean that they should be um, given the ability to, preach the gospel. I mean, it's just a, I mean, it was, it, he really, um, humiliated and dehumanized her. There was no honoring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there was no respect. Yeah. There wasn't even courtesy. Yeah. I mean, he really took zeal in mocking her, um, and her attempt to be faithful. Um, and it was public. I mean, it was a public rebuke. Mm-hmm. It just, it was really, it was quite, really ugly yeah and the crowd loved it loved it i mean there was so much um just 
laughter and derision and joy and energy. It was not a joyfulness about the complementarian theological position. Yeah, because when we talked about it, we were saying things like, you know what, if you are a complementarian and that's your position, okay, we, we can have a debate. But this kind of thing was so mean-spirited. It was so, you, you didn't treat her like a sibling, like a sister in Christ. Um, it, there is no conversation. Well, there was not any sense in trying to help someone discover a truth. Mm. There was an intention to humiliate yeah. and reject. Um, and so it just was, I mean, it was a really interesting I mean, it was a really um, apocalyptic in the sense of revelatory moment that you saw that what is at stake is not a theological understanding. Because again, I I don't read the scripture as a complementarian, but I I can have a conversation with someone who says, hey, when we talk about men being in authority over women as Jesus Christ is in authority over the church, let's talk about what Jesus Christ's authority looked like and the kind of self-giving, submissive, empowering, anointing, sacrifice. I mean, like, there's a way that one can be a complementarian Mm -hmm. in in a way that there's a lot of room for Mm -hmm. mutual, you know, co-laboring in the vineyard and a lot of room for honoring. And, you know, I don't, I mean, I would never presume, I mean, it will take a lot for me to say to someone that's absolutely an unreasonable way Mm -hmm. to read scripture. Um, You know, we, we all have faulty doctrine we all do mm-hmm. but um you know that was not faith working itself out in love um and so that i mean it was just a really remarkable moment that it was so clear that it wasn't about doctrine it was about derision i was thinking power it was very much winning about power. Mm-hmm. um culture war yeah and i just i mean it's interesting even to think about how much energy and attention to give this, um, especially as a white woman who enjoys a lot of privilege, you know, on the one hand, I'm not under any illusion that this man, whether he likes it or not, he is my brother. He's not my enemy. And I think he's wrong. Um, being wrong is not a sin. I think that he was, um, susceptible to sin in that moment, not for his doctrine, but for his um, countenance, mm. but I recognize that I very often stumble into the same pit. And we were talking on our walk earlier this morning about how sometimes, like, it's just not enough for us to be satisfied in Jesus. We are we find our satisfaction in our presumed spiritual superiority over other people. Like that's what makes us feel safe or that's what makes us feel like that's my identity is like, I'm better than that Yahoo over there, or I'm better than those outsiders over there. That's just such a powerful weapon of the enemy. And and that's what I see there is someone who is wrong, um, who's been taught to be wrong within his tradition. Um, he's, he's not evil, it's more complicated than that. Yeah. Um, well, and, and he's it, not doing anything that I don't do. I was just about to say yeah. that. Yeah. It, in a moment of, of reflection, you can see how we do similar things, just different subjects, right? I mean, and I think particularly we do it um, when we are feeling anxious, when mm-hmm. we are feeling afraid, um, when we're not, like when I'm walking filled with trust in Jesus, I don't, I'm, I don't have 
you know, I don't feel spiteful or threatened by other people. And it's just funny, like the one time that I went to the General Assembly, um, which was several years ago, and which was, a, I mean, a challenging space for me to be in. Um, and so I did feel very, I don't know, threatened and insecure. And, and so the way I manifested that was just by making fun of things. And it was really funny. My friend, um, Robert Ostell was there and, um, we sort of had, I had this ongoing joke. Robert did not participate in this, but like from, uh, from Psalm one, it talks about like, you know, uh, the, the righteous person does this and, Mm -hmm. you know, stands and the unrighteous person like sits on the bench of mockers. And I would sort of say like, I want to process today. And, and I would just be like, come back here and sit on the seat bench of mockers with me. Cause I just need to, you know, have my little, you know, zingy comments about, you know, can you believe this person said that? Or can you believe that person said that? And it was funny sort of towards the end of that week, Robert was like, um, you know, that that's not really what the psalm is encouraging us to do, right? Like sitting on the bench of mockers is not what we were purposed to do. And I, and I do know that, but I also know it's just this shortcut to a kind of cheap satisfaction mm. that sometimes we're susceptible to. It's like the mocking bench is like the Cheetos of spiritual fruit, right? Like sometimes you just get a taste for it. And once you have one, you just want more than one. And so I just... I, I can identify with where John MacArthur is. Um, I can understand that I'm not different than he is. That doesn't mean that his words don't have impact. Um, they have great impact. They have great impact, and they increase, increase enmity within yeah. the body of Christ. Yeah. And that's a problem because yeah. we can't draw people to Jesus if we can't even love one another, if we don't even find unity in Christ within the body of Christ, then, I mean, it just really matters. Well, because folks are saying not simply that we disagree with Beth Moore, but that she is a heretic. Correct. She's and a she's, false teacher. Right. She's not one, she is not. She's not one of us. Correct. And, and the determination of who is one of us is, do I approve of how this person is living their life. And so if you want, I mean, the danger is, and this is, a, I mean, the danger of religion. It's the danger of the Pharisees that there are people who really sincerely believe that they um, are the ones who are responsible for determining. Um, who's in and who's out. Right. And so <laughs> the connection is. I mean, really, the thing that I am super excited to talk about, I'm so excited to talk about this that I almost can't talk about it, um, that we, I was saying in our last podcast that I was about halfway through this book, Unfollow, which we recorded yesterday. And so last night I finished the second half and I, I just, I, 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 I can't even begin to talk about how powerful and mm. profound this book is to me. So so remind so, folks what the book is right, about. Right. So um, everyone, I think, is familiar with Westboro Baptist Church, which is this um, small sect. It's one church yeah. <laughs> in Westboro, Topeka, Kansas. Um, and they are infamous for protesting um, homosexuality by protesting at funerals mm-hmm. and celebrating you know, acts of violence and destruction in just really um, uh, remarkable, remarkable ways. And so the, this young woman who wrote this book, Unfollow, is named Megan Phelps Roper, and she is the granddaughter of the 
founding pastor of this movement. And it is the story of how she left the movement. And, and I knew enough to know that I wanted to read this book. Um, and I knew enough to know that, that her, her, um, coming out of this, this book was, was mediated by relationships, um, that, that people who were her enemies had with her over social media platforms like Twitter and people who engaged with her, um, where she was and, and were able to see her as a complex person who embraced an evil ideology, but was more than evil. Right. Right. And, and, and that is a a tricky thing to do right now in this cultural moment, like to believe in redemption is a controversial thing to believe in because, you know, if you're on one side of the culture where you just believe that, like, yes, you know, you, you believe in the death penalty, you believe that just certain people, their lives have no more value and they need to be snuffed out. And if you were on the other side of the culture where you just believe that some people embrace such an evil ideology that, that they need to be, you know, shunned and humiliated. I mean, there's just this idea that people are defined by the worst thing they've done or the worst thing they believe and that these things are insurmountable and, and that's all there is to them. And, um, it's really tricky to think about how, how can you be in relationship with, with a person without co-signing on their belief system? Anyway, whatever, that's what I went to read the book for, but, but what, what it was, there was just so much about this family and this church that I did not know for example, you discover very early in the book what I didn't know, which is the the founding pastor of this church, Megan Phelps Roper's grandfather, and her whole family is lawyers. They're highly educated people. And he was a crusader in the civil rights movement. Like won awards from the NAACP. Let me just clarify. White dude, right? He he ends up in Topeka, Kansas. And because he has this zeal for righteousness, and in this moment, he walks into the system and he's like, you know, this white supremacy is, is evil. I know it's evil. And he was just zealous to promote righteousness and to dismantle this evil system. And he didn't care what it cost him. And he just trusted God to provide. And he took civil rights cases that no one else would take, white or black, because he just did not give an F, right? (laughs) He just didn't care. And so God was able to use him to do tremendous things. And, but, but it's so interesting then he, he, his whole understanding of what it meant to be a believer, what it meant to be faithful was to be a crusader for righteousness, like to be reviled by the culture because you embrace righteousness. And so then like when he finished fighting the civil rights movement, then all of a sudden his next crusade attacked with the same kind of zeal was against whatever the, the homosexual agenda. And, and the, anyway, that's just fascinating and then beyond that, there's this huge difference between who this family was, and it's a large family, like 80 people, to one another and who they were to outsiders. Because you just assume, oh, these are going to be hateful people and they don't know what love is and they're not capable of like intelligence or, and like, it, it, I mean, I'm reading the part of the story where she's finally leaving and you just I mean just sobbing inconsolably because because of the high it just I mean I know intellectually that people aren't 
one thing or the other. People aren't good or evil. People are both and. I know that. And yet, you know, there are times in your life um, and that, that you just run up and realize, like, even though I know it's not true, I still function as if it's true, mm. right? I still function as if some people are worth my time, some people are worth my attention, some people have something to offer, and other people are just like you know, who cares? And like, I would never say, oh, you know, God doesn't love a person, but I don't, but I mean, I function as if that's true. I function as if there are some people that aren't worth redeeming, as there are some people that have no value in them, as if there are some people whose whatever, whose evil in my eyes is so great that God's goodness and love doesn't have the interest or the power to overcome it. Like, even though I say I believe in redemption and grace, if I look soberly at my own life, like those, that's not what I tend to bet Mm. my work on, right? Like there are relationships I avoid. Anyway, I just, it was such a powerful convicting read for me and just makes me see even more and more about why you and I, I mean, believe so strongly in the power and the importance of the local church and why we have to care about inviting people in, right? Because there are people, and maybe not as extreme as the Westboro Baptist clan, but like there are people who are being raised in a terrible ideology of of evil. We're taught, you know, and, and there's no way to come out of that unless someone's willing to enter into relationship with you and share the grace that God has given them. And we just write people off. And we were saying on our walk that like none of our small, none of our churches, small or large, I mean, we're not picketing at funerals. We would say like, there's nothing, there's nothing similar between Westboro Baptist and our congregations, but there is because this is a congregation of people who understood themselves to love God and deeply, fiercely loved one another and did not care about anyone else. We're able to just rejoice in other people's sufferings and like... And did not care because... Because they didn't think God cared about other people. Because they felt like anybody that God cares about is somebody that I already know. So if I don't know and care about you, that's my proof that God doesn't know and care about you. And would you also say because they saw others as beyond redemption? Oh, yes. And they say like anybody who is capable of understanding this already does. Mm. And so I, you know, and my ability to walk with the Lord and perceive God's grace is a function of my virtue. Like I'm just a better person. And, and anybody who doesn't already know this is somebody who is never going to know this. And I don't need to waste my precious time or my precious life trying to engage them. Right? Like, because we were saying like our understanding of ministry is so much more formed by the culture and by consumerism and by capitalism than it is by the gospel. When like the fundamental premise of the gospel is God, you know, God, God coming down and investing his holy life in people who were not selected because they were the cream of the crop, right? You know, and it's supposed to be this neon sign that tells us that everyone is worthy of redeeming and capable of being redeemed and that the grace of God, you know, is transformative, not on the basis of 
the quality of the person, but on the basis of the quality of the grace, right? Yes. And like we function like grace is some like radioactive spiritual compound with a half life mm. that is rapidly depleting, right? Like I just, I, I mean, there's just this spiritual pride that has corrupted our understanding of the gospel. I, I really believe, but I mean, definitely mine. And I just am so, um, it's just so powerful to think about how easily we can be duped into thinking that the best way we can love Jesus is to hate people who do evil and how anybody who takes the gospel seriously and takes sin seriously could ever believe that given the fundamental premise of like, while we were yet sinners, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Jesus came and died for us and transformed us. And I believe in that death and resurrection, not in my own goodness. And yet functionally, I don't know, clearly I just, I, I have, I'm, I'm verklempt about this, about this book and, and, um, my own, um, just patterns and priorities and prejudices. And, um, I just think everyone should read it. Believers should read it. Pastors should read it and just really look at, are we not interested in people being freed? In many of our congregations, it seems that we may not hate those on the outside, like actively hate Correct. and pick it, but we're guilty of apathy. That's what I think. We just like, don't care. Right. Like we call it yes. tolerance, but for yes. many of us, there's no functional difference between tolerance and indifference. Yes. And tolerance is not indifference. Like tolerance is a function of love and trusting mm-hmm. God. Indifference is I don't care about you as long as you don't affect me. And to some of us, really, like we we want to see people unchanged so that we can grum, stay smug and satisfied in the change we've already experienced instead of, you know, looking for, for more. I was um, driving home yesterday after I left your office, after we recorded our podcast yesterday, and I drove past a church in our presbytery. And they have a sign, and you know the kind of signs where you can change the letters and some mm-hmm. have these little sayings and, you know, cute little things. And I drove past this church, and the sign read, This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. And I've heard that over the years, uh, mm. many, 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 many times. And every time I hear it, I think, that's not True. That is not this the gospel. This world is your home. Not, not, not this world system. Not, not right. the system, but the planet, this blue ball, is our home. And the gospel is not that God is going to take us off the planet into heaven forever and ever, but that heaven comes to earth and redeems the planet along with a redeemed people. Well, and the reality is, like, the gospel... I mean, guess what Jesus didn't do? Pass through, right? I mean, like, if Jesus... If God brought God's very self down to earth, not to pass through it, but to redeem it, then why in the world do we think that our lives are so much more precious that they shouldn't be wasted or not trust the Holy Spirit indwelling in us to do the same thing. Like, Well, I think there's a mentality in, in many of our congregations uh, that says something like, okay, look, it's been 2,000 years since the death and resurrection of Jesus. Surely 
Right. The return is like, it's got, we we should be able to put it on the calendar soon. Right. And so let's just hang on. Let's just sit back and drink a margarita and wait for the floor show. Yes. And I I heard someone say uh, recently, uh, or ask the question, what if in God's timeline, in God's big picture, what if we are still in the early church? Yeah. Right? We yeah. we just don't know. And so the the work of evangelism goes on and it's just as urgent well, and I as think, when Paul was on his missionary journey. Right. I think we we had more urgency about evangelism when we were sort of in the enlightenment, really. Like when we really believed in human progress and we really understood God's redemption as mediated by human progress. And a lot of us yes. have lost faith in our abilities, lost mm-hmm. our wrong faith, our yes. illusion in our abilities to save the world for God. And so then we we have just sort of lost any expectation mm-hmm. or interest in participating in redemption because we think, well, if we can't do it, then clearly the plan must be to blow this blue ball up and get a better pie in the sky yes. by and by. So now that the church and the culture have moved past a very simplistic believe in Jesus so you don't go to hell. Now I believe in heaven and hell. I know everybody doesn't, but I do. But but there but there's a there's a movement past this simplistic uh, let's get our ticket to heaven so we don't go to hell. We haven't replaced it with a vision of the kingdom, a vision of heaven infecting earth with the glory and goodness and um, uh, prosperity and wholeness, the shalom of God. Yeah, and I would say, I think that for like our denomination in particular, I think that people moved across, moved away from the heaven and hell ticket thing a while ago, but I think they replaced it for, like when Jesus said the kingdom of God is among you, we were like, oh, okay, let's, let's get to go work. Build. Let's go build yeah. a tower of Babel, right? Yeah. I mean, not for nothing, yeah. but like, the the mission statement of our presbytery is i mean uses that building language building like we're kingdom. building the kingdom of god yes. in the seven counties and beyond and we like, don't build the kingdom I, but i mean that we've had that idea because we've been especially as americans just like so in love with you know human progress, progress. and we really have believed that if people will just get in line behind us we can do this work so you know we were talking a little while ago this morning on our walk about the need to be in a place where we embrace, celebrate, walk in the right now reality of the indwelling and empowering of the Holy Spirit. Instead of going first to let's build something, mm-hmm. no, let's be let's be a spirit-filled, a spirit-possessed, a spirit-moved, a spirit-led people. Well, and I think to be able to say that when we talk about Jesus being the way. It's about saying, let's be a people who walk in the ways of Jesus, mm-hmm. who who live according to the values of the kingdom and and you know sort of at follow the spirit's prompting to make choices and behave in ways that seem very peculiar mm. and out of step with the world because they're the ways of Jesus. And so we just trust that there's a goodness in them and a life in them that are beyond anything that the culture would expect or predict. And I I mean, that's what I think is so damning and convicting for me is that I, you know, I mean, I've been aware of Westboro Baptist. I was aware, I'm not on Twitter, but like I was aware of 
um, Megan Phelps Roper as the Westboro Baptist, like new generation Twitter force or whatever. Like, it's just so shameful for me to admit that, like, it never even crossed my mind to think about anybody within my tradition making any kind of overture to her because honestly the world made more sense to me with her as my enemy and Mm. like deep down like I wouldn't have said it but like I wanted her to stay my enemy because as long as she stayed my enemy then I could really more easily recognize myself as quote one of the good ones right and so like that's what I think is interesting it's convicting to me that the people who reached out to this woman to engage her, who were interested in having relationships with her, they were not Christians. Because, you know, there's just not functionally a great big difference between being inside Westboro Baptist and thinking, like, we're the only ones in the world who have the truth and are capable of, you know, conforming to it or, or honoring it. And there's not a huge functional difference between that and the people who are part of a church that's dying and their response is, well, okay, that's fine as long as we still have enough money to run a youth group for our own kids, right? Like that, that I mean, yeah, the, the ways that we're expressing, I mean, like we were saying on the walk, like the main difference for me between Westboro Baptist and some of the churches where I have loved and been loved is that Westboro Baptist just had more zeal mm. to pursue righteousness yes. as they understood it. They were willing to make different, bigger sacrifices and take bigger risks and be more public. But like, it wasn't like the churches I were in were more loving towards outsiders than, I mean, towards outsiders. Like, I'm not saying that we didn't do charity because that was how we understood doing righteousness. They understood doing righteousness as picking at picketing at funerals. I was taught that doing righteousness is like raising money for orphanages in, in on another continent or sure. packing food or whatever. But I was not taught that righteousness involved actually expecting that God felt about me in the same way that God felt about someone who was far from God, right? Like I, functional elect, like that's how that kind of elect thing, how I absorbed it is like, I'm chosen because I'm better, even though I know that is not mm. the theology. That's literally the opposite of the doctrine, but that's how I how it, lived it. How out. I, yeah. yeah. So yeah. anyway, I just, um, I have lots of thoughts. Mainly my thought is that everyone should read that book. And this was supposed to be a short little podcast. I know. We well, have crossed that Rubicon. Let, let's talk about your sermon that you're going to preach in Louisville at the General Assembly office. <laughs> it's a great thing that you got asked to do that. I mean, I, I will say that I had one sort of place where I thought I was going. and You changed? Well, no, but I mean, I just... I, I, I'm just saying. Because I love the text that you're preaching. Right. I mean, I think it's, I, so I'm preaching on, um, the woman, um, the, the woman who, uh, broke into the party at the Pharisee's house and broke the alabaster jar on the feet of Jesus and anointed his feet, um, well, washed his feet with her tears and dried them with her unbound hair and anointed his feet with the oil. And this is the version in Luke, so this is not, um, you know, this is not right before the passion, and um, people protest, but not because the money could have been sold for the poor. It's just, you know, that it's unseemly, this um, unashamed display of love and affection, and affection for, for Jesus. Jesus. And that yeah. is the right now message for yeah. our denomination. I think an unashamed affection for Jesus. Get get out of your head. 
get out of your um, uh, wanting to look um, not presentable isn't the word um, respectable mm-hmm. right we want to be respectable let, let all of that go and just look foolish because of your your love your affection for Jesus yeah I mean I just think it's interesting for me um, and and it and it connects with sort of what I'm struggling with with this Amos text about you know God has gives us these oracles of hope and restoration and we experience the first fruits of it but I just don't think that we have the imagination um, the prophetic imagination to to perceive what God's intention is for creation to to perceive the ends of God's love like we don't we don't see it we don't imagine it so we can't celebrate it and we can't lean into it we we just keep thinking that God is going to be a better higher version of the powers that be in this land like a kinder gentler the kingdom of God is going to look like a kinder gentler America like we just don't have the capacity to see that God's system is not any of the systems of this world. And so like, I just think that it's not a matter of like, do people love Jesus and does Jesus love people? I mean, the answer to those questions are yes, but I just don't think that we can conceive of, of, of what God is doing. And so we can't, we don't, we can't get as excited as we should get. Like we don't see what God's goodness is. And so. Yeah. Cause even when we read the book of revelation, it's about, okay, who's the antichrist? Right. Who's the beast? Right. What's the mark? It's not me. I'm not God's enemy. Right. right? Like that's all it is. is And, and, and you know, when is the rapture coming in? Am I going to get taken out of here? And it's never a focus on, Revelation 21. Well, and right? I just think the reality is like sometimes I think the best that we can do, I mean, and again, the Westboro thing, the John MacArthur thing, like it feels like the best we can do is to say what we're against, mm-hmm. to be really motivated by what we're against, whether that's egalitarianism or complementarianism or hate or, you know, feminism, whatever it is. But we we can't do that next harder work of beginning to proclaim what we're and beginning to long for not what God is dismantling, but what God is building and begin to identify the places in scripture where we say like, this is what the gospel is. Like what I want to celebrate is that I believe in a God who can look at Paul, look at Saul and not see, you know, a violent destructive force that needs to be snuffed out, but to see a potential to to use this person for good, right? Like that. This we don't have a concept of what shalom is. Like, I mean, and we, I would say we have we have small we have crumbs and glimpses. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't say that we we don't have it. I mean, I'm thinking of 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 the the best of the black church tradition. Yeah, yeah, would yeah, be yeah, yeah. Not only. God's judgment upon and destruction of the institution of slavery and white supremacy, but also a vision of the beloved community. I have and a I've dream. been to the mountaintop. I yeah. a, right. Yeah. And it's 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 both and uh, yeah. But in our in, in this present moment that we are living in, we're choosing let's destroy the thing we're against and right. we're not lifting up the the dream the that vision that we're inviting the hope. people into yes. and I, I mean that's just harder work and i 
I mean, it's one of my issues with fiction is it's easier to write about evil. It's easier to write about decay Mm -hmm. in like compelling ways than it is to write about goodness in a way that isn't saccharine and simplistic, right? Like it's just harder to articulate what we are for than it is to do zingers about what we're against. And we were saying this morning that like if what we understand evangelism is about helping people make a decision and it's based on commerce and selling, then it's easier to sell a problem than a solution, right? Like it's just like that's just as the cultural moment. And I think sometimes we're, we're trying to be so relevant to what riles people up that we don't recognize that that's, that's not salvific. Like it's just not salvific to have a community based on what we are not instead of a community based on what we are, which is followers of Jesus. And what's interesting for me is that passage, and we haven't talked about this before, but like I have such a a history, a personal history with that story in that, you know, when I was first really story, the story of the woman with alabaster jar that when I was first, um, beginning to, to really understand myself as a disciple and really claim that identity and scripture was in very much ways still closed to me. Like I just didn't have, um, I just hadn't been taught enough to understand it. I had a church that, you know, loved me and included me and relationally, you know, I experienced God's love well before I understood any kind of doctrine. Like, you know, and I would have believed anything and and sometimes did just because someone said, if you love Jesus, you think like this. And I go, okay, well, (laughs) I I need to stay part of this community. I do love Jesus. So, okay. Like if this is what I need to think, then I'll Mm -hmm. think it, you know, and so scripture didn't really mean anything to me, but that story of the woman breaking the jar and pouring it on, like that always really resonated with me. And, and early, I really identified with that woman and really felt like, you know, this is my, this is what I want to be in, in my life. And I just, I don't know, I just had this emotional connection to it. And then when I, you know, got a call to ministry and, and went to seminary and, and began to get some of the context that made so many other passages of scripture so meaningful to me like then that woman just made me mad and I just thought like I don't want the sum total of my life to be worshiping Jesus like I want to mm. do something right like I want to uh, yeah, yeah. you know I want to I want to be like you want, Deborah and you want to build up. the kingdom all right like I want a different role right like I don't want to just worship Jesus I yeah. want to you know and I just think that's so so interesting how how easy it is to to think that that's insignificant or that yeah. that's not transformative or not powerful or not worth our time that we can just kind of get this scorn. And I, I I don't, um, I mean, I, 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 I see that danger in myself. Um, and And it's present in the church. I mean, cause we're, we're constantly looking for a new program, a new something to attract people. And it's, it's always out there or, or it's, it's an, an anxiety about when are we going to arrive? When are we going to get mm-hmm. to the place? Instead of enjoying where we are on the way to where we're going, mm-hmm. the, the whole way of Jesus is a way of joy. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Yeah, and to say, you know, I just you dismiss things as, quote, just worship. But, I mean, what that woman did was... I mean, she was risky. She didn't ask for permission. She was prophetic. She she made a huge sacrifice. I mean, there was nothing just yeah. about her worship, but it was it, it it its value could only be 
rightly seen by Jesus. Mm. Uh, right? I mean, nobody else in that room had the capacity to understand or affirm what she was doing. I mean, I don't, I mean, I'm with you. I mean, you and I are in the same place that I think, you know, I love my church locally a lot and I love my denomination and I feel called to it and I don't, I'm not ashamed of it, but I think just like any branch of the body of Christ, like we need reforming Mm -hmm. and, and we need an awareness, not just, you know, we don't need to just be disgusted with ourselves. We just need to be really open to and excited to participate in God reforming us and willing to break the jar and willing to like pour out all the perfume and not save anything for later or not devote anything to our own agenda just to be able to say that you know the the thing that matters in this church is the risen Jesus and that's that's all that matters and to- and, and the temptation for me as a pastor is to say to the congregation over and over and over again, how come you guys aren't being like this woman? Mm-hmm. Instead of, it's me, it's me. I need to model that. I need to be in that place where I am pouring everything out on Jesus. If this church grows, great. If it doesn't, great. I'm right. still adoring unashamedly Jesus. I'm still walking in joy. I'm still and to be able to say, not holding back anything. I can be unashamedly in love and serving in relationships with the people that God has called me to be in relationships with and not and and not worried about, you know, not anxious about mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. they're doing or not doing or like wanting the best for them, wanting to be faithful with them, but just confident of what God is doing and not trying to hedge any bets, not trying to hold anything back, not trying to be reasonable, not trying to be good stewards in the sense that we often talk about that as in like, let's protect. Mm. And, um, anyway, anyway, so this is not a short podcast and we need to, I know, (laughs) (laughs) um, but we are, um, grateful as always for the chance to have this conversation and, um, just prayerful that God will do something with it in, the lives of the people who are listening um so you can find all our things on the internet so go look if you want to otherwise we'll talk to you next week